How does that sound? Is that okay? Great. Uh, we're going to begin with a little chant tonight, and um, it's just we're going to do it, and you can join us if you know it. And it's the uh, Anicca Vata Sankara chant. Okay? Anicca Vata Sankara Upadua Yadamino Upakitua Niruchanti Te sang upasamo suko. And the chant is a very well known, famous Buddhist chant. And the English words, what the Pali is saying and what the chant invokes, are these words all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature, is to arise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth, to live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to appear and disappear. To live in harmony with this truth, the way things are, brings the highest happiness. And so I love that chant and love the what's being expressed there about coming into alignment with reality, with the way things are, and the happiness that brings when we come into alignment with this arising and passing of reality, which is happening every moment. Right? Have you noticed that today until 7.45 now is gone? Right? It all came and went. Came and went. And it's totally happening when it's here. And then it's gone. And we have memories or they things touched us or didn't touch us or we liked or we didn't like. But it all just keeps going arising and passing, are impermanent. And it brings to my mind many questions that I think are valuable for this retreat and what we're doing here. <clears throat> and I, I appreciated somebody this morning brought in the Rilke quote. And I, so I looked up the Rilke quote about loving Loving the questions, loving the questions. And the quote goes, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Be patient with all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions. Try to love the questions themselves. That's, again, it's just beautiful dharma to my heart and mind. Oh, loving reality, which is so mysterious and so beautiful, and brings so many questions, right? So, be patient toward all that is unsolved in one's heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not now seek the answers, right? And this is very, meaning not try to figure it out. Do not, 
seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. The point is, the point is to live everything. To live everything. Live the questions. Live the questions now, he says. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distance, distant day into the answer. And so he's pointing at the reality is what brings the truth or the understanding. Living with the experiential reality of this arising and passing and the, and the questions and the... That was a good, I I consider always that's good support for what I'm saying. Um, Wakes me up. And, uh, but that the quest, that reality itself brings a certain question or investigation that we give ourselves to. And we don't just figure out the answer. We live the questions until we live the answers the answers reveal themselves to us. And so one of the questions that I thought about and I'm going to give to you, which is, what do you think death is? What do you think death is? And what do you think dies? What do you believe dies? And of course, what concerns you about death? And so I just want to plant the questions. I'm not asking for answers, but just feel your own question about what is death? And maybe you have answers right now. And maybe you don't know all the answers yet about what death is. That's possible, that you may not yet know. And one of the things, when I first started practicing, I first meditating, I actually meditated with kind of a slightly new age guru person who had a lot of powers, a lot of cities, S-I-D-D-H-I, cities, meaning spiritual powers, and a lot happened around him. It was very interesting to sit with him and and then after about eight months or yeah a little more close to a year I got kicked out he kicked me out and you know that wasn't a bad thing because all my friends nobody could believe I was even sitting with this guy because he was a little he had some you know he had his pluses and minuses and uh to be polite and um so I used to go to Zen, and, but I learned to love meditation. And, and so I started going to Zen Center in San Francisco. And at Zen Center, you didn't have to do anything or join. You just had to show up at 5.30 in the morning. And you know, if you showed up, they let you in and you, you got a seat and you sat. And, and then I didn't have to do, I could just leave. I didn't have to relate to anybody. It, was, it worked well for me at that time. And, uh, but, but what really caught my attention was this.
And that's how you would be called to meditation at the Zendo. There would be a big block of wood, big, big block of wood hung up and somebody would hit it. You know, like I'm doing slowly at first, letting everybody know it's time, it's time people would be coming in who live there and all. And then slowly it would get faster and faster until, and then when that happened, you couldn't come in, right? Now this would really upset people in Spirit Rock if we didn't let you in after the meditation started, but we don't do that. But it was Zen and, and I was young and it was like, okay, so I, and, but, but the block of wood called you to practice. And what was written on the block of wood was this, great, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And that caught my attention. And I have always had some draw to understanding death, right? And to learning about death. And even with this, it was like, it just made total sense, right? Great is the matter of birth and death. And, and I loved it because it wasn't birth is great and death sucks, right? It was like, oh, great is the matter of birth and death. And as I remember it, they were hyphenated, like birth hyphen and hyphen death. They were connected. And it's connected, as far as I understand, in all of reality. That if something is born, it dies. And if something dies, it w had been born. It's not separate from the way things are. Birth and death. And I'll say a little more later. And so we're here studying aging, dying, awakening, right? And again, as I often say, I don't know if I said it in this room and Anna often asked me, she said, oh, you didn't say that, you know, which I said many times when we've taught this retreat, um, you know, that this is a no bullshit retreat. And I say that because people are old enough and mature enough, they want the truth. They want the Dharma. They want what's available and they also, everybody here knows they're going to die, right? Anybody not know that, <laughs> right? But, but I mean, know it a little differently than when you were 20 or 30 or 40, that it changes as we age. It'll definitely change for me also, for sure. And then the Mahabharata, the Indian text, they say, what is the greatest marvel the greatest marvel. And the answer is each day death strikes and we live as though we are immortal. Each day death strikes and we live as though we are immortal. This is the greatest marvel. And it's one of the things, it's like everything, if you watch TV, there's not a lot of ad, positive ads about death. You know, like, oh, if you buy this, you'll die well. <laughs> you know, or, you know, if you get this kind of house, your death will be beautiful. 
You know, it's, it's all about life and staying alive and keeping alive and looking alive and, and getting even younger, even though we know you're younger, but you could look even younger. Now, we know you're older, but you could look even younger, right? And so I appreciate the culture where they talk about reality, right? This is just part of rea- This is just normal, meaning death is normal. It's not a mistake, as far as I can tell. <clears throat> but even aging and dying, I mean, those are like, nobody wants the aging and dying deal. Right? Everybody wants to let's stay young forever. Good luck. I re, as I was reflecting on this, I remembered my mom at a certain age, um, and I was a young man. I was very enthusiastic about things, and my mom always wanted to go to college, but never had. And nobody, none of my dad and mom didn't go to college. I don't think my dad even finished high school. But my mom and dad hadn't gone to college, and and my mom was bright woman, and and she wanted, and so I was trying to encourage her in her late sixties to go to college, and she kept saying, no, no, it's not the right thing, it's not the right thing, and she's, and then and at some point she just said this one thing to me, it was very offhand. She said, things change, things change. It's just not right anymore for me. And now I'm old enough to see, oh, she was older. She didn't have the energy for that. She didn't have quite the interest to go do that. And, and, and of course, that's part of aging, which is our, um, our faculties become less pronounced and our capacities are not as, our muscle is not as strong as it was in whatever we're doing. And we lose things in that way. And I have seen my own um, age and the impact of aging and how um, difficult it's been sometimes and also how beneficial it's been sometimes. And also I've had a lot of some different relationships with death as I age. And one of the things that happened is I had what was referred to, or it could be called a near-death experience when I had my big accident about six years ago, my bike accident. And, uh, and I had a lot of loss, and it wasn't clear if I was gonna live or die in the first week. It just wasn't clear. And, um, and um, it was very powerful to go to have that happen, even though I didn't know what was happening on the usual conscious level because I'd had a brain injury. So I didn't have the usual reflective capacity that we're all used to. It was gone, right? It was lost. It had died for a while. And that had its minuses for sure and I was very fortunate to have people who cared for me and hospitalized and all that stuff. Um, um, But also, oddly, 
good things happened even in the first week in the middle of the night when I didn't know whether I would live or die. And so it's really kept my appreciation of both not knowing and the potential of, oh, what happens when you, one dies? What is that, really? <clears throat> the other, another way that I've appreciated um, a certain kind of death in the last few years is my own past lives have become very clear to me, right? And I know that sounds like a big deal, but it's not. You all, you all have had past lives in this life, right? At least that's what I, like I'm old enough now, like, oh yeah, I had this whole life in, in uh, Detroit where I grew up and it was, it was a good life. And, you know, and it had, believe me, it had its pluses and minuses that had to do with me, but, but also it was very good. And it was a whole nother life and a whole nother time and a whole nother world. And that world is gone, right? And then I was in New York and I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, I was happy to, I moved to New York when I was 18, when I finally, they let me out of high school, finally, because I'd quit school a number of times. They finally let me graduate so I could leave. And, um, and, uh, and I went to New York and I, I got a job and then I got involved with radical political street theater in the late 60s and anti-war and anti-racism and anti-prejudice and anti, we were, we were anti, <laughs> seriously anti and radical and it was, and it was great. And I was one of the young kids in the street theater. I was 18. And, uh, you know, and the older people were as old as 30. God, they were ancient. And, um, <laughs> but it was a whole life that I didn't even know. And I was living in the Lower East Side. If you know, know you, New York, this was the first time um, hippies, which I was a hippie, were living in the, in the Lower East Side. And it was, in my language, cool. And, you know, I was trying to explain some this to somebody the other day and saying, oh, yeah, I lived near the 2nd Avenue Deli where I would eat all the time. And that was great. And then a block, two blocks away on Avenue A, there was a psychedelic contestant where I would get my supplies when I needed them. And, you know, it was, it was a different world. And, it was, and, and also, it's a great street theater. It was really beautiful, fun, creative. I, it sparked a whole creative life in me that went on for many years and 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 that whole world is gone and that Eugene is gone right and there's memories and the and the and the uh, impact of that is here but you know that's that that life is gone which it was it was quite a life and then you know and then after living the the street theater became a commune in Oregon, and we didn't realize there weren't streets in Oregon where we were living when we moved there. So that was a little bit the end of the street theater. But we, but I, I started to, I started to play music in the street theater, and then I really got into it when I was living on the commune, and I started to 
play a lot, and I also learned how to re- repair woodwinds for a living. I worked in the Eugene Music Company with, in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and and but when but when but but we, I had to get out of the country. I was a city guy. I had to get down to San Francisco. Was at least a city, even if it seemed like a beach town after New York. Um, and and we. And so in in um, San Francisco, then I really was studying the flute, playing. I would practice eight hours a day, and then play per, play at night. Well, I wasn't even interested in performing. I was interested in improvised music, jazz and post jazz kind of music, and it was great. And I even had a performing space in my house that I named after my dog. So it was called Temple Max. And Max would be at every performance. And, and I had people from around the world performing in Temple Max. And, you know, and that was a whole life that I was really passionate about and loved. I loved, you know, I had a lot of musician friends and we would perform and we would play a lot of strange music and we loved it. And, you know, and then after a while that all faded, meaning it just other things happened and then I just saw I would never be the musician I wanted to be. I wasn't, it it wasn't my fate. Let me put it that way. I practiced hard and I was, I did some really interesting things musically, but it wasn't my fate. And at a certain point, uh, I wanted to go back to school. And so kind of quickly, I, I, quickly, meaning in two years I got a BA, two years I got an MA, and I became a therapist because I knew a lot about psychology because, <laughs> I can't tell you everything, but, <laughs> but, but I'd been incarcerated for a little while when I was a kid in a Detroit mental hospital in a, in a locked ward, adolescent ward, and it was great. It was, <laughs> This is a true story. And, and by great, I mean I got a lot of help. And, there, and it was before they were just giving a lot of drugs for everything. So I never got drugs. I got individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy. Was that freeing? Woo, thank you. And I had a great psychiatrist, right? And on and on. So I knew a lot about therapy from having experientially gone through it and seen the benefit. And so I became a therapist because I knew about that stuff. And that was a whole world in life. And then I had a therapy office and friends and did that, you know. And then at some point I got into meditation and, uh, you know, really got into meditation. And, and after a few years of practicing, you know, meditating, uh, you know, with, um, with um, what was it called? Dharma West? Before Spirit Rock, oh, uh, Insight, Di- Dharma West, Insight Meditation West, something like that. We used to have a different name before we had Spirit Rock. And I was sitting with Jack Cornfield, and after a few years, Jack said, would you be interested in teaching? And to be really honest, I thought he was crazy. But I, but I respected him. If he was asking, oh, sure, I, I would do that. You know, even though I thought he didn't know what he was talking about asking me. 
And, um, and then I got involved with teaching and becoming a spiritual teacher. And as slowly, the whole, my whole life as a therapist went away because I got more and more involved in teaching and, and more every which way in, in teaching, both um, uh, Buddhism and then also in the Diamond Approach, which I was involved in. And, and just watching all these lives, especially after my bike accident, they're all past lives. Even being a Buddhist teacher is so different now than before. Like that I do think of it as like a past life because something radical happened in my accident, in my loss of my mind for a while. That was a radical thing. That's radical to lose your mind because we all depend on our mind all the time. And we don't even think about it because the thinking is our mind thinking, right? And that was gone for a while for me. And so I'm pointing at different kinds of past life and then also just the ways we lose our identity, because I lost my identity in that accident. And and I've also lost my identity in Buddhist practice, but that was more syntonic, even though that can feel very difficult also at times when that happens. And so the questions that come for me now are really... Uh, I love the I do love the questions. It's like, what is reality? What are we? What are we if we're not exactly our ideas or beliefs? Or what if we're not our history? Like that was very clear to me after my accident that I wasn't my history, right? Because my history was gone. And yet I was there. I was somewhere. That's a better way to say it, right? And so part of looking at how does it impact you and your life around death is what happens if we're real with the fact of death? Because that's all that Buddhism asks us. Can we be real? Can we be truthful? Can we see clearly what's here? Can we see clearly the way things are? That everything that arises, passes. It's very simple. It's very, so simple. Sometimes I think, oh, what's so hard about Buddhism is how simple it is. We're all used to more complexity. We're all, and when I say we all, I'm including myself, we're all attached to complexity. It's so simple. It's like we can't quite land in the isness of this, of what's here, without adding on a lot more. And so when I'm asking all these questions, like how does it impact you and your life to be real about death, I'm not asking you for answers. I'm saying live the questions because you're going to live the question to the end. And that end may not be the end. Let's see. 
because we don't know all the answers. That I am, that's one thing, if I say anything that's totally true, we don't know all the answers, right? Everything else, you know, is my opinion. This I'm sure about. Actually, I say it and then I wonder, hmm, let me think about that a second. Maybe we do know all the answers, but we don't know we know all the answers. <laughs> but that's the Zen side of me. <laughs> um, so part of what the teachings ask us to do with death is to recognize that death is organic. How's that? How about that if, if um, on my tombstone somebody put, happened organically? because <laughs> right? it's, it's nat- natural, right? It's, it's part of life. It's just the simplicity of things appear and then they disappear. And I want to read to you one beautiful teaching in Buddhism. This is called Advaista Natapindaka. It's a Majjhima Nikaya, number 140, if you're interested in reading it yourself. And I like very much Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, his translation with Bhikkhu uh, uh, Nanamoli. And I believe Bhikkhu Bodhi, who lived much longer than Nanamoli, he, he did the final translation. And he's a really good guy. I know him personally and have a lot of love for him. And the story is about Anattapindika, who is one of the Buddha's early lay f- followers, householder followers. And he gives the land for the first monastery, which is a very famous story also. But in, it's, near, it's later in his life, and they hear that he's afflicted, suffering, and gravely ill, right? And so um, uh, Sariputta and Ananda, the two of the Buddha's top you know, disciples, like if you look in, that, in the, the picture back there, there's two disciples that could easily be Sariputta and Ananda uh, in the bottom corners. And they go, and they're told to go see him, see how he is. And they go see Anattapindaka and, and Sariputta uh, uh, says, I hope you are getting well, householder. I hope you are comfortable. I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. And that's, uh, they're subsiding and not increasing, not increasing is apparent. And Anattapindaka talks to them directly and says, I'm not getting well, venerable. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. And it's apparent this is happening. And then he describes, and I'll just read to you how vivid it is in, in the Pali text sometimes. This is Anattapindika describing his discomfort. He says, just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so too violent winds are cutting through my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband, so too there are violent pains in my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a skilled butcher 
were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife, so too violent winds are carving up my belly. I am not getting well. Just as if two men were to seize a weaker man by the arms and roast him over a pit of hot coals, so too there is a violent burning in my body. I am not getting well. And 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 my um, right, my painful feelings are increasing. And so they give him a teaching when they hear how serious his condition is. And the the teaching starts, let's see. Um, it's, it's a very long teaching. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll read a little of it so you hear what's being asked of all of us about practice. And so... Um, They say, householder, train yourself thus. I will not cling to forms. I will not cling to sounds. I will not cling to smells. I will not cling to flavors. I will not cling to tangibles. I will not cling to mind objects. And my consciousness will not be dependent on these things. Thus you should train. Let's see. What else? Householder, train yourself thus. I will not cling to the earth element, because one of the main practices in the Satipatthana is the elemental nature of reality, which we are an expression of, right? So I will not cling to the earth element. I will not cling to the water element. I will not cling to the fire element. I will not cling to the air element. I will not cling to the space element. I will, And I will not cling to the consciousness element. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. And then they continue to go on. Train yourself thus. I will not cling to material form. I will not cling to feeling. I will not cling to perception. I will not cling to formations, mental formations. I will not cling to consciousness. And my consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. And it just, it keeps continuing. And and even he just then he describes a series of very deep um, samadhi experiences and not clinging to the samadhi. He says, "I will not cling to the uh, the base of infinite space. I will not cling to the base of infinite consciousness. I will not cling to the base of nothingness. I will not cling to the base of neither perception nor non-perception." Which these are these are states of consciousness you can experience with a lot of practice generally, right? And then, and then they, he goes on. This is again Sariputta giving this instruction to us, to the householder, Anattapindika, and says, "Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to this world." And my consciousness will not be dependent on this world, and I will not cling to the world beyond, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond. Thus you should train, and then you should train. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on that. And when this was said, the, the householder, not the Pindika, wept and shed tears. And, and, and Ananda asked him, the venerable Ananda asked him, are you foundering, householder? Are you sinking? Meaning he's asking him, oh, are you dying now? 
And and uh, Anattapindika says, I'm not foundering, Venerable. I'm not sinking. But although I have long waited upon the teacher, it's capital T, it means the Buddha, but I've long waited upon the teacher and the bhikkhus worthy of esteem. Never before have I heard such talk on the Dharma. And they said, such talk on the Dharma householders not given to lay people, to householders. Such talk on the Dharma is given to those who have gone forth, who are monastics. And he says, he's speaking for us. He says, well then, Venerable Sariputta, let such talk on the Dharma be given to lay people. There are clans people with little dust on their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dharma. There will be those who will understand this Dharma. And then after that, uh, the household, giving the householder Natapindika advice, they left. And soon after they left, he died and reappeared in the Tushita heaven, which is one of the Buddhist heavens. And then he has a relationship with the Buddha from the heaven because the Buddha's got a very open mind that can go almost anywhere, including to the heaven realms. And and the Buddha's totally happy with what's happened because he's free in this heaven. And it doesn't mean he's free because of the heaven. It's free because he let go in the way he was taught. And what did he let go of? Everything. And we are also learning how to let go in a very beautiful way. Because the letting go doesn't mean pushing away or denying or, or, not be, or doesn't mean not being involved in reality, but it means not holding on. It means not clinging. And that's really the phrase they use throughout. And it's something that we learn as part of dying because... Um, We're all going to die, right? And it's normal. And nobody has ever failed at dying. You know that? Right? And there's an opportunity here to keep letting go and seeing what happens to consciousness as we let go. So our consciousness is not dependent on conditioned things. <clears throat> and so part of the way we wake up, paradoxically, is by getting real and even being real about death, about our mortality, about the arising and passing of everything and everything we are involved with. And it doesn't mean not to be involved in it. It means seeing the truth of the way things are and then seeing what way we might be involved in whatever we're involved in, whether it's family or friends or politics or, or whatever your interest is, whatever you're drawn to, then what happens is you give yourself to life knowing 
that there's nothing you can actually hold on to, right? Did I say that clearly? There's nothing we can actually hold on to. The holding on is a mistaken perception about reality. We think we can hold on to something or we act as if we can hold on to something. And, you know, I'm happy to meet with any of you after we die and tell me what you have then. Tell me what you're holding on to then or what you could hold on to because I, I don't see it. And at least one of the things my accident taught me was about, oh, I didn't have anything after my accident for a while. And I, I mean that, even though I know there was a lot of good support, which really, you know, maybe I wouldn't have even survived without the kindness and care and love, but also my whole mind was gone. My whole idea of who I was, that was gone. And it was not just a bad thing. It was not just a good thing. I'm not, don't go out and have a bad bike accident. I'm not suggesting that. And yet, who knows what, how reality brings the Dharma because it was all Dharma. It was only Dharma. This is from Kalu Rinpoche. He said, we live, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now, that's a beautiful teaching from Kalu Rinpoche. Funny, now I'm thinking I, I actually have a friend who, who studied with him, did a three-year, three-month, three three-day retreat with Kalu Rinpoche. She's one of my favorite people. She's, she's a wild woman. And, uh, you know, and he, and he was quite an awake being. And so what does it take for us to give ourselves to practice and even with give ourselves to life and death, to birth and death, to the whole show in Eugene language, right? What, what else are we doing? And it doesn't mean we have to stop doing what we're doing. It means being right where we are anywhere. Because the as I said, I believe I said it here already from Munindraji, the whole Dharma is sitting right here this is the whole Dharma is right. Everything in, in this book that's pointed to in this book is sitting in your seat. That's what this book is pointing at, is this amazing capacity for human beings to wake up. And maybe, maybe it's a capacity all beings have. I'm not clear exactly about that, but I know that the Buddha pointed at human beings and said human beings can wake up. <clears throat> and so the teachings on death are just a normal part of Buddhist teachings. It's called um, 
It's called Maranasati, mindfulness of death. And one of the people, uh, Larry Rosenberg, said that the Buddha said, uh, of all the mindfulness practices, mindfulness of death is supreme. Right? Is supreme. And that's, that's an important thing to hear. Like, oh, this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing to start to wake up to birth and death. Because we spend a lot of time being aware of our life. And we want to be aware of the totality or the reality of what's happening, rising and passing, rising and passing. And it's happening in every moment is actually born and dying, born fading away, arising, passing, coming, going. And it's just normal. It's not a bad thing. And to come into harmony with it is what our practice is, is to come into harmony with the way things are. And so there's a lot of positivity around death for living our life. If you read um, the Mahaparinibbana, Mahaparinibbana, Maha means great, um, Parinibbana, the Great Awakening Sutta, Mahaparinibbana, it's about the Buddha's death, right? It's not about his awakening. His awakening's the beginning. The Great Awakening is death in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And and there's this positivity because it's an archetypal story. What does the Buddha do? Because the Buddha knows he's going to die. He's not suicidal or anything. He just, he's, his vision is such, he knows things. And he knows he's going to die. What does he do when he knows he's going to die? He goes and visits all the different groups of people who are, have studied with him and are, are his students. And what is he, and, he, and he talks to them about living and how to live life because death can teach us about life because they're not separate. It's one thing, birth and death. T.S. Eliot said, he said, I had seen birth and death, but I thought they were different. Right? And it's such a numinous experience if you've ever been around a dead person and it's not like your um, closest person, who, especially who died suddenly. That's, that's, that's traumatic when that happens. And I'm not trying to make that all good at all. It's not. It's very painful, very difficult. And yet, when you can be around, like I did a lot of hospice work, and so I spent a lot of time with people who were dying. That was my job. And just hanging out with them. And it was quite something to be around people dying and and just be really given the opportunity to see through their eyes. Because really, people would always give me a lot of compliments because I was doing hospice work. Oh, it's so great you do that. And I could never explain, oh, it's, 
it's all a gift. They're, they're giving me the gift by allowing me to be there because it's a very special time of life for all of us. And, and, and who knows what actually happens when we die. We'll all know soon enough. Stay awake. That's my advice. Because let's see what happens when it happens. Because we don't know. And let's live the question all the way to the end and see what happens. And but it's also I you know but I'd spent enough time around people who were dying and died uh, that I spent time with my parents when they were dying, especially my mom. And uh, you know it was it's so t- hard, difficult, painful, bereft was part of the loss of my parents, but also I was so happy to be with them because it's it's. It's a little like being at a birth when we're at a birth, when we're at a death and we're not just emotionally um, um, uh, traumatized by the death, which can happen very easily with death. But when that's not there, it's kind of amazing that somebody's there, 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 and then they're gone. And in Eugene language, it's like, where the hell did they go? What actually happened? And I remember my mom dying and, and washing her body. And it just that, I mean, so much happens because I hadn't seen my mother's body uh, naked since I was a, a baby, right? Or a toddler or something. And I was, I, I remember I was uh, 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 reminiscing about her breasts, like, oh, these are the breasts that I nourished on. And I was having all these fond feelings, you know, for my mother feeding me. And then after a few minutes, I realized, oh, she didn't do that. She fed me by the bottle. I never, <laughs> you know, I'm, and so, and I'm saying that because it's humorous, but also we make up a lot and we want to see what's true because it's more freeing to be with the truth of the way things are or were, even with my mom and or or with my um, dad when he was dying. Uh, and he was older. He, he died much later than my mom. And, and uh, he was like 91 or 92. I can't remember it when he died. And, and he, was, he, was, he was done. Believe me, he, he even a couple of times he said, you know, I'm done. Why can't I die? You know, can you help me? And I was like, yeah, sorry, dad, I can't. I wasn't, I wasn't liberated enough to help him with that. That wasn't my thing. So, but, but, and then he died, and, and I was with his body, and it was so freeing to see him dead, because he wasn't there. His body was there. He wasn't there, and I realized something, something that I'd been holding in my mind, clinging to. We could say. I was holding to seeing him as an old man and he died and I realized, oh, he wasn't an old man anymore. And it was so freeing because then I could, I remembered him all these other, all the years of my life. He had been a young man when I was born and he was a this man and a that man. He wasn't just an old man. And it was so freeing to 
for me to be free of that conceptualization of him as an old man. Because we all look kind of old and we're not just old people. That's just one moment of life. It's just one moment that arises and passes. And there's so much more here than old or or young. That's not who and what we are at all. And so our practice is to start to discover what's here, what's true. What did the Buddha point at that freed him, that he said we could discover? And uh, when Suzuki Roshi was dying, somebody went up to his room and he was in bed, extremely weak, skin discolored. He bowed, I bowed, and then he looked right at me. He looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, don't grieve for me. I know who I am. Don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. So that's a kind of freedom in the middle of dying, right? We're not, here's, here's another one of my little Eugene tips. <laughs> You're not your body. You know, we have a very intimate relationship with our body and we're definitely related to it and located around there for the moment. But that might not be who and what we are. Let's keep seeing what happens when the body, in my language, relaxes or dies. And let's see what, where's consciousness then? And what is consciousness then? I have so many good things and I'm just about ready to stop, but I'm trying to see what what to stop on. Mm. I'm going to do two little things. One is from uh, Tao Wei, who is Chinese uh, monk. And in China, often before people died, they would write a little poem like the day before they died or the day they were dying, they would write a poem. And so he told he told the monks and nuns where he was a teacher that um, and the lay people, he said, uh, he would, tomorrow I'm going. And the attendant asked him for a death verse, you know, and he said, he said without a verse, I, I couldn't die, he wrote. And so he wrote, Birth is thus, death is thus, verse or no verse, what's the fuss? <laughs> now, 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 I have to acknowledge whoever translated that did a good job in English, but it was pretty interesting, his perspective that, that has been given to us Right, because he knows something. Birth is thus, death is thus. They're not so separate. It's all right here. 
And then I'll end with um, Ajahn Chah, who's my teacher's teacher and who is part of the lineage here at Spirit Rock, an important part of the lineage. Ajahn Chah was a Thai forest monk and total Zen master, in my opinion. And he was called into a home of a, a householder with somebody who was dying. And the person asked for help. And he says, now determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dhamma. During the time that I'm speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it was the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. Right? Today I have nothing, I've brought nothing material of any substance to offer you, only the Dharma. Listen well, understand that the Buddha himself, with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. The Buddha himself could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body and its heavy burden. This very lump of flesh that lies here in decline is called Sakka Dharma, the truth, the truth of this body, and it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at this body, to contemplate it, and to come to terms with its nature. The Buddha said, rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change. This is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and mind, and I would add heart, the body, mind, and heart, so to see their impersonality, to see that neither of them is me or mine. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position. Even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples, they differed from us in only one respect, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They differed from us in only one respect in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw that it could be no other way. So let's sit for a moment, please. Anicca vata sankara upadava yadamano upakitua nirochanti te sang upasamo sukho. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness.
Thank you for your practice and your kind attention. We have some time, slightly shorter, for walking meditation. If the person who rings the bell for the walking, ring it right at nine, and we'll come in at five after nine. Okay. Thank you all. <laughs>